Welcome back, Tiger fans, to Rockin' Radio's football podcast. I'm Nate Edwards. And I'm Nate Edwards. This is before the box score. A uh, single wing, single setback, 10 personnel. I don't have my fullback with me. This is going to be me today. Uh, I will be joined later on by SEC Mike, who's going to talk to us a little bit about the SEC East, what he sees uh, coming up in the next uh, next year, especially as we get into talking season, as we get into SEC media days, which are just around the corner. Uh, so we'll be talking a little bit about that, the SEC at large, and of course, get his thoughts on Missouri, because I know you all love SEC Mike's thoughts on Missouri. But, you know, while, before we get to that point, there are other things we want to talk about. We got a huge recruiting weekend that happened, a huge boom in recruiting that happened, which is great, obviously great news, uh, and dive into that. So wanted to at least touch base with you all uh, from the Missouri-centric side before we get into SEC at large and bring on our guest. And of course, the reason I'm doing this by myself, like I said, is because uh, BK is out on paternity leave. Uh, so congratulations to BK and his wife, Kara, on the arrival of their son, Luca Allen. Uh, I was texting with him uh, during the process. Obviously, it's a very exciting time when you are a first-time dad and uh, having the having your wife go through that whole thing it's 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 a it's a mess it's a it's a lot of pain and it's a lot of agony and it's a lot of pressure but man it's such a reward at the end they got their son they are doing great uh, I have not seen a lot of him on social media which means that he's probably busy with the son and or not sleeping so all of you dads out there trying to think back when you first had your first kid you're like what the hell am I doing and oh by the way I'm also getting two hours of sleep a night that's kind of what he's doing right now but at least from my standpoint, I'm excited because, again, my reach of daddom is expanding throughout the Rock and Nation uh, masthead. We have another dad to add to the dad pod. Uh, so, of course, congrats again to BK and Kara. Uh, may your son sleep through the night mostly, and you you won't be doing okay. So um, that's, the, that's the good news for him. Uh, and, of course, you can reach out and give your congrats to him, and he will be back. Sometime soon, the dude, uh, is, he's a grinder, so he's not going to be out for long, uh, but we will wish him luck and look forward to his return. Um, something else that I wanted to get into before we got into the recruiting stuff, again, kind of a bummer to start us off, but I felt like it was worth bringing up. Uh, if you heard about the Northwestern stuff so far this week, uh, it's, it's kind of messed up. If you haven't heard, uh, Pat Fitzgerald, who was the, well, now former football coach for Northwestern, was fired on Monday. And the reason that he was fired, this kind of depends on how you want to look at it. He was either fired for, A, allowing a culture of sexually violent hazing to occur on his team, or B, he was not aware of such a culture existing. So take whichever definition you want, neither one are good. Uh, it resulted in Northwestern firing. Now, this came on the heels of Northwestern releasing a very vague report on Friday, the Friday news dump, saying that they were aware of some allegations being made. Uh, Coach, Coach Fitzgerald was going on a uh, two-week unpaid uh, suspension during the quiet time of July. Uh, it wasn't until the Daily Northwestern, the, the student newspaper did some digging, got some sources, some anonymous sources of those who filed the whistleblower complaint, uh, when all this came out, and then Northwestern went ahead and fired him. So this is going to be a litigious incident that's going to go on for a very long time because clearly there were some promises made to Coach Fitz uh, at the beginning that were reneged uh, once things came out to light, which this is not good for anybody involved. Um, but I want to get to the point kind of at the core here. Whenever you have an insular group whose goals require rigorous physical training there are going to be what we'll call accountability levers that will be pulled by the supervisors or uh the peers of that group and really unfortunately there's just it kind of feels like there's no way to get around that whether you're in the military or you're on a sports team of either gender whatever it is this sort of thing is going to happen when you have young people in a physical situation that need to get better okay but when you leave the interpretation of what is and isn't acceptable to that group itself, and then leave investigation, discipline, enforcement up to that group, well, you get the toxicity that we've been exposed to at Northwestern. And this isn't just happening at Northwestern. There are other 
toxic hazing rituals that we have heard about, even in college football. Go back to the 1990s. I think that's my, maybe the most famous example. Those Miami Hurricane teams of the 90s that were so good. They had uh, a hazing ritual, kind of a, a discipline ritual, where if a player fell behind or got out of line, they had to get in the circle, which was a physical place in the locker room where they would then have to fight multiple upperclassmen, like physically fight them. And it worked. I mean, apparently there were very few fights because they were just scared to death of these guys, but that's not great. That's not a good environment. You know, the when, when you think about Alabama and Georgia, the the hazing, if you want to call that, the disciplinary issues of those teams. Granted, this is the stuff that gets released, so, you know, Think about where this information is coming from, that sort of thing. But still, the stuff that we know about, the rituals that they use for punitive improvement. If the players are falling behind or messing up, other players make them do the drill again. Make them get into the weight room again. Make them read the book again. Run the stairs again. Like, it's punitive actions done by their peers, yes. But it is in an effort to make them better and then make the unit better not humiliate them in front of their peers in a bizarre, just embarrassing way of just, you know, you screwed up and now we're going to make you feel bad. That doesn't make anybody better, okay? Plus, keep this in mind. I mean, think of think of the blue chippers, the four and five-star guys. Their talents are so in demand. If you tried to have this culture with a blue chip football player on your team, they wouldn't stick around. Their talents are so in demand, you tell them that you're going to, you know, dry hump them on the ground, they're just going to say, I'm done. See ya. Hit the transfer portal. They want to they tolerate that at all. But at Northwestern, when they recruited two-star and three-star guys, the our kind of guys, uh, you know, that's the type of guy that Pat Fitzgerald recruited, they tend to not have as much demand for their athletic talents. And even then, if they thought of going elsewhere, what the report said is those upperclassmen would tell them, look at your degree and shut up. Insinuating that, you know, graduating from Northwestern was worth the punishment that they're going through, worth the embarrassment that they're going through. It's all messed up. Like, as a personal opinion, no one should have to go through sexual violence like that in order to play a game and then graduate from college. I feel like that's unnecessary. But the whole reason I bring this up is that there is a gentleman on Missouri's football team right now who was a freshman at Northwestern last year. His name was Austin Firestone. And as the report said, it tended to be freshmen who were the targets of this kind of messed up punishment. So I I don't know if he was a victim in any of this, but he was there. I'm sure he saw it. If he wasn't a victim, I'm sure he had some friends or some teammates who were. So, as a mostly empty gesture from me, but but truly a heartfelt message from me to him. Austin, I hope you weren't a victim. And if you were, I hope you find peace and fraternity at a team that doesn't do that kind of crap. Okay, we're going to move on. Well, first, I want to take a drink. That's the benefit of a single-person show. You get to hear them drink. Oh, and just to lighten the mood a little bit. Last, yeah, I've been drinking out of that 1983 uh, mug. I found a 2015 cup from that disastrous campaign. But yeah, that's Maddie Mock. Uh, that's Evan Bain. So much potential. It could have been a good season. Too bad the offense fell apart. Anyway, let's talk about good stuff. Let's talk about Missouri's recruiting. We have at rockinnation.com, we have profiles on everybody who committed in that whirlwind of a week right around 4th of July. There's also a chance that we have uh, another four-star linebacker named Brian Huff who could commit to Missouri tonight at 6 p.m. I am recording during the afternoon. I'm not going to be able to record tonight. So when you hear this, you're going to know more than I do. Um, unclear on if he's actually going to commit to Mizzou. There's a camp that says yes, camp that says no. So we'll we'll find out at six central. But I guess I want to get kind of into my broader thoughts on this recruiting class. Um, 
you know, just as as we as it currently stands anyway. Um, and the first thing I want to talk about is those boot chippers, right? It's no surprise, and it's certainly not a secret anymore, that Eli Drinkwitz has massively improved Missouri's ability to recruit blue chips. Um, now, granted, Gary Pinkle and Barry Odom, that really wasn't their style. They were more of the find the diamonds in the rough and build them up, right? That we've talked about that time and time again. It's not worth going over. But if you want to win in the SEC, you need blue chip talent. Um, it's not always going to be, you know, a surefire thing. You know, recruiting rankings on the whole, you know, are going to be way more accurate than they are on the individual. You can point to a number of individual four- and five-star guys who were slam-dunk, can't-miss prospects who just didn't cut it, whether they were in a situation that didn't work out or they got injured or they just weren't as good as we thought they were going to be. Like, there's a, there's a number of reasons why. But the point is, you regardless of the anecdotes, regardless of the individuals, on the whole, you need more blue chippers on your team than not. And Eli Drinkwitz has been doing a pretty good job of doing that up until now, right? If you, for a long time, you know, this year, it's been like, oh, he's only getting three stars. What is he doing? Well, he did manage to get a couple four stars. Well, like, like I said, a couple more, uh, one more at least, possibly on their way, uh, taking Missouri from like, the team with the least amount of commitments to the 63rd best recruiting team in the country as of right now. So, like, UNLV and Boston College are right below them. Oregon State, USF, Colorado are right above them. Again, recruiting season isn't done. That can change a lot, but it was a massive jump. Uh, and the per-recruit star rankings um, are some of the best in the country. I think 30th is, is what I saw last time. So they might not have as many guys, but the quality of guys that they're getting is improved. So this, this brings me to my first point in that you, as a college football team in the year 2023, need a lot more blue chippers than just regular three- and two-star guys. It's okay to get those guys and build them up, but you need to find the talent. Now, how does Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, how do they do it? Well, they they win recruiting battles with four-star linemen. That's how they do it. Offensive linemen, four- and five-star tackles, guards, centers, defensive tackles, edge rushers. That's how they do it. Yes, they have blue-chip quarterbacks. Yes, they have blue-chip receivers and corners. But if you want to win consistently in college football, you need to have both lines be way more talented and way better than than your opponents. As simple as that. You can recruit blue chippers to do that, or you can find two, three-star guys who can become that. But when Missouri found success, 2007, 2008, 2013, 2014, those 07 and 13 teams had dominant defensive lines and offensive lines. Remember, that 2013 team has like four offensive linemen in the NFL still to this day, plus the defensive line talent that Gary Pinkle and, and has been has been renowned for, for being able to find. Coach Kuligowski found him, coached him up, made him good, right? It's the reason why Missouri was so competitive. They had, they had consistently good defensive lines, and occasionally they would have an awesome offensive line, and that's when they'd really take off, okay? So you need to fight that. Now, if you can't get that, if you can't get the talented offensive line and defensive linemen, then you need to build them up. You need to find kids who can grow into it. You need to find a coach who can put that kind of guy, teach him the skills, get him into the league. Or if you can't do that and or, then you start focusing on getting elite talent in the passing game on both sides. Elite quarterbacks, receivers, and then edge rushers and corners. That's how Clemson did it. Clemson isn't putting offensive linemen in the NFL consistently. They've got a couple defensive linemen they've put in, but it's not linebackers. It's not really running backs, although they have a couple. What they do is they maximize on the outside in the passing game. Quarterback, receiver, offensive tackle occasionally, but edge rusher and corner. People that affect the passing game. Get really talented dudes in that, and you can kind of cut the corners a little bit. Now, you might not win a national championship. Clemson was able to after a couple of years, but that's a good way to cut the gap. 
Ole Miss would did this as well back in the mid mid teens, the two thousand teens. Okay. So Eli Drinkwitz brought in a four star receiver in James Madison. That's a good way of doing it. He's also got a four star linebacker already committed, Nicholas Rodriguez, out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Quick question for you. This is going to be fun. I want you to think, and in your mind, how many blue chip linebackers has Missouri recruited out of high school and brought on the campus since 2000? Okay, think about it. How many four and five star linebackers has Missouri successfully brought on campus out of high school since 2000? Can you think? You can think of one because he's still on the team, so you know that one. There's two others. Can you think of them? You had to go a long way back. So there were three. There are three linebackers who were either four or five star rated coming out of high school who signed with Missouri and played with Missouri. I'll stretch this out to see if you can think of the name. But here they are. You know Chad Bailey. That's, that's not the first one, but it's the most recent one. He signed in 2018. He was a four star coming out of high school. The other two... Columbia's own Van Alexander in 2004. And then the four-star Juco linebacker Josh Tatum, who signed with Missouri in 2009. That's it. Those are the three. Those are the three four-star linebackers Missouri has signed since 2000. And now, Eli Drinkwitz has signed one, and Nick Rodriguez, and potentially two, if Brian Huff says yes at 6 p.m. tonight. I don't need to tell you, I don't need to break the news that Eli Drinkwitz is a good recruiter, but man, some of these things that he does, it's it's incredible how he's able to break the mold and bring in things like we've, we've never seen before. The other interesting note that I noticed from this recruiting class so far anyway is, is let's, let's say hello to the state of Florida. I don't know if you know this. I know this because I keep track and I'm a weirdo. Um, but if you break down the Missouri roster by state from where they are from, Number one state by far is Missouri. There's 26 scholarship players, 36 walk-ons currently. Like that's most of Missouri's team is Missouri boys. After that, it's Texas, 11 scholarship Texans, 12 if you count the walk-ons. Then after that, it's Florida with six. No walk-ons, but they currently have six scholarship players from the state of Florida. So it's the third most populous state represented on Missouri's roster. Now, I, I did a piece... Hold it up. Uh, back in, yeah, it's 2020 during that time. Uh, I did a piece back in 2020 looking at Missouri's recruiting efforts in Florida. And at the time, I found them lacking. Uh, let's go through the numbers real quick. So, from 2000 to 2020, Missouri recruited 25 Floridians. Since then, the 21 class, the 22 class, 23 class, you got Zach Lovett, Davian Sistrunk, Zaquan Reeves, Les Hewitt, and then, of course, Shamar McNeil from this past class. So 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, that's 30 players. 30 players, 20, 24 years, roughly, uh, of Floridians that are coming onto the team. Now, have they worked out? Eh, not really. 12 transferred away. Three were dismissed, so that's 15 gone right there. You had 10 starters. I don't think of, like, Elvis Fisher, the offensive lineman from the late aughts, early teens, Missouri teams. Uh, Jasper Simmons, he was a safety. He started in 09, 010, or 010. Um, who else you got? You got Sean Colkin, NFL tight end Sean Colkin. Not the most renowned pass catcher, but he started uh, 37 games over his four-year career at Missouri. They got, you know, Tyree Gillespie, Jalen Carlisle, Floridians, Ish Witter, running back, right? Like, there have been a couple that have worked out, but the vast majority really have not. So again, 12 transferred away, three were dismissed, 10 started, two drafted so far. Now you got four in this class. And not only do you have four in the class, they all from the same day in high school. Not all of them. Um, so you got Cameron Keyes, a three-star corner out of Lynn Haven, Florida, Mosley High School. And then you got the St. Thomas Aquinas gang. 
That's Justin Bodford, the three-star defensive tackle. That's Nick Rodriguez, the four-star linebacker. And that's the president, James Madison II, the four-star receiver. Okay, All St. Thomas Aquinas kids. So look, I'm not saying you know, these guys aren't going to cut it. I'm not saying these guys are going to wash out just because from, they're the, from the state of Florida. You know, a lot of Missouri's recruiting efforts in Florida were either A, hackneyed, because we were in the Big 12, and that was not really something that they were concerned about at the time, or B, forced. Remember when Missouri made the SEC leap, Gary Pinkle said we need to commit to this, and he expanded his recruiting footprint into the SEC footprint. But he didn't have those connections. He didn't have the relationships. They were starting to build those in 13, 14, 15. But if you don't trust these coaches, if you don't have that rapport like you had with Missouri high school coaches, Texas high school coaches, Kansas high school coaches, and they send you somebody, you know, Florida is rife with speed talent. But it doesn't matter how fast you can run if you can't catch the ball. Right, And it seemed like a lot of the talent that Missouri was getting was fast, and that was about it. A lot of these guys washed out, didn't really do anything. So if Eli Drinkwitz has the connections or that's just been long enough that Missouri is a known commodity to Florida high school coaches, now they trust the staff or they have connections with the staff, recruiting efforts can turn around. They absolutely can. And it looks like that's that's been the focus. So We'll see how it how it ends up. You know, it's nice to get four stars. It's nice to get Floridians who are you know, it's a football crazy state, and there's a lot of football talent there. So history does not dictate the future, but it is worth taking a taking a look and seeing what's happened in the past, just to gird yourself with things go askew. The other thing, last thing I would say uh, about this recruiting class is just it's interesting the types of guys that this staff is targeting. And I don't know if it's a, you know, a Drinkwitz, Baker kind of special with how they're looking at guys, or if this is just going to be the nature of recruiting in 2023, 24, 25 with transfer portal. I don't know. But have you noticed that there's a lot of athletic diversity in these guys? It almost seems like, you know, outside of the blue chippers anyway, outside of James Madison, outside of Nick Rodriguez, what they are looking for is athletic versatility. They're they're just recruiting athleticism rather than positions. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of guys who are just listed as athletes. Yeah, they play a position in, in, in high school. Maybe they play both ways, but there's no, they're not designated specific position. A lot of those guys being recruited, they are one thing. And then you hear, you know, what the coaching staff is telling them. And they might be something completely different by the time they get on campus. So what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about, think about Whit Hafer. Whit Hafer? Tight end. Or he might grow into an offensive tackle. That's kind of what the, the coach has pitched him. Hey, you're a big kid. Now we can get you in an offensive tackle if we build the weight right. So maybe he's a tight end, maybe he's an offensive tackle. I don't know. Jude James, listed as an athlete. He plays tight end, and he also plays safety. Coaching staff likes him as a tight end, or maybe they like him as a star. You know, the, the third safety, the rover safety, maybe he plays that. I don't know. Jackson Hancock, they're telling him he could either play linebacker or safety. Cam Dooley, linebacker, possibly edge rusher, play defensive tackle. There's a lot of versatility here. And does that mean that, you know, in modern recruiting, you recruit these projects that can be a lot of different things, and then you pull in from the portal the stuff that you don't have? Is that how we do it now? Or is the game more of a positionless football, and probably specifically more positionless defense, where... A defense just puts athletic dudes on the field. They can do a little bit of everything. And so it's less about, well, well here's the mic and here's the will, and here's your edge and here's your tackle. So, you know, one, two, three, four, A, B, C, D, we got that. And we know where we're running. You can move them around. You can kind of confuse the offensive line, confuse their reads, confuse their calls, 
You can bring in a blitz from over here or over there. You can drop them into coverage. Having that versatility, having that ability to kind of do everything. I mean, the downside is if you're good at everything, you're not great at anything. But at the same time, if you have this amoeba defense that Blake Baker runs where a blitz can come from literally anywhere, maybe that's what you're valuing. Maybe you need guys who can do a little bit of everything. And that's great. I'm good with it. Hiring tight ends, you know, who can play star or guys who can grow into a linebacker, edge rusher, defensive tackle. Maybe that's just, that's what it is. And then when you figure out what they can play, then you can figure out what your gaps in your roster are. They just pull them from the portal, baby. Just pull them in. I'm not saying it's the right way of doing things. I'm not saying it's going to be the way things go with recruiting going forward. It's just, it's interesting. It's interesting. I like quirks. I like things that I haven't seen before. Because, you know, you follow this stuff for long enough, you start getting bored. I like something new. I like something innovative. And I'll be really curious to see what the rest of the class is going to look like going forward. Because there's just it's a lot of athletic versatility. And then if you bring in the high-level talents, you can do one thing and then sprinkle in. A bunch of guys can do a lot of other things. Well, maybe it works. But get back to me in four years. I'll tell you if it worked or not. Same for Eli, right? All right. So that's enough for Missouri, at least on the stuff that's updated on our end. Like I said, SEC Media Days is next week. It's interesting that Eli Drinkwitz is not bringing a quarterback. That kind of might tell you that he definitely does not for sure know who his quarterback is going to be. Uh, but Darius Robinson, Javon Foster, and Chris Adams Drain, good picks, great picks. They've been in this program for a long time. Uh, they probably are well-coached and not being able to say anything. Um, we'll see if Eli Drinkwitz drops a headline grabbing line. He tends to do that. Uh, even if he says that he wants to be less, uh, calling less attention to himself, he can't help himself occasionally. Uh, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Again, the contingent going to these things, it's its mostly just to get you excited for the season, which I am. Uh, I hope you are too. And to continue that, we're going to bring on SEC Mike, and we're going to talk about the SEC East and his takes on Missouri. So welcome aboard, SEC Mike. And we are joined today by SEC Mike. That's his name on Twitter. His real name is Michael Brandon, but, you know, it's SEC Mike. He's the host of that SEC podcast. He and Cousin Shane talk about the SEC in football all year. Not really. Football is an all-year thing, even if it might not be as busy as you think during the season. But uh, Mike Bratton, he you're heading out to SEC Media Days soon, so I appreciate you taking the time to join our show today. Welcome aboard. Yeah, Nate, I appreciate it. And even though I locked up the dogs, they're still going off at the exact worst time, so I apologize for that. But big fan of yours, big fan of the show. Uh, I love listening to you and BK. You're my go-to source for Missouri information, so I'm happy to, to be here. Yeah, well, I know you have you have had some brushes with Missouri fandom in the past, and, you know, we, we got our crazies, you got your crazies, and not everybody agrees with what, uh, with what you say, but, you know, no one can argue that you got the facts and the logic and the thought process behind it. So I love having you on here and picking your brain, especially as we get closer to the season, as we get closer to actual football happening. It's always good to check in with you and then just kind of take the litmus test of what the SEC East is up to this year, which again, it's the last year of the SEC East, man. We're going to be talking about the SEC in full uh, in the upcoming years, but let's let's break it down one last time by the division. And I want to run this through kind of like my own personal power rankings of the SEC. So we're going to start at the bottom. Let's talk about Vanderbilt. And I, we might be starting with them. I might be saying that they are the worst team, but I'll tell you, man, I don't think there's any team in the SEC that's improving as fast as Vandy has in the past couple years. What's your take on on the Commodores, and which teams do you think Vandy will surprise beat this year? Yeah, that's interesting because we haven't posted it yet, but we just did our – we're we're doing our fall camp series where we're spending an hour on each team. And the last team, kind of for obvious reasons, we just did Vanderbilt. Like I said, we haven't published it yet, but there's a lot to like about Vanderbilt 16 returning starters, 23 seniors on the roster, including potentially nine senior starters on the defensive side of the ball. And and I would argue the the offense is the stronger side. So uh, there are there's stuff to like about Vanderbilt, no doubt. And I think uh, to Clark Lee's credit, I think his teams play better 
you know, it's only been two years, so it's, uh, I don't know how bold of a statement this is, but they played better at the end of the, each season than they do at the start, and they started pretty hot last year too. So um, I, I love what Clark Lee's doing. I think he's doing a tremendous job for what he has to work with, but it's still it's no given that, um, that they'll match last season's record. I thought they'd win an SEC game. Uh, they ended up winning two, obviously, and, and had they beaten Missouri – they would have been bowl eligible. I don't. I think a lot of people don't realize how tight of a game that was. But uh, to answer your question, which games could they win? I mean, heck, they beat Kentucky. They beat Florida last year. I, I think in a weird way, though, I, I almost feel like those are games now that um, almost like must wins for those programs. So I'm not going in either one of those. Even though I, I do think Florida, if the wheels come off and. It's crazy to even be saying that in year two of a, a coach, Billy Napier. We'll get to him, I'm sure. But uh, if the wheels fall off, I, you know, I have that one circled in Gainesville. But if I'm looking at two games that I think Vanderbilt could win in conference play, this is going to be unpopular with your audience, but I have to say Missouri is one. And, and that's not to say that I'm favoring them to do that. I, I certainly would favor Missouri to win that football game, but I think that is a logical one. Uh, we'll we'll see how Missouri starts the season, but I, I, there's a lot of optimism with Missouri. But if they falter, maybe that's that's a perfect trap game for Vanderbilt. And the other one, again, I'm kind of high on Auburn and, and what they could do year one under Hugh Freeze. But it's a lot of guesswork with Auburn because they essentially have an entirely new offensive unit, new coaching staff, obviously, so many moving pieces via the transfer portal, and we all assume new is good. It's not always good, you know. Uh, so Auburn could be a disaster this year. I don't. Again, I don't think they will be. But uh, if you know many pieces don't work out, injuries occur. That that's a roster that can't suffer a ton of injuries and still compete in the SEC. So so give me Auburn as a likely upset. And and I, I know they're all fired up about Hugh Freeze. He's he's beat Alabama twice. You have to say that every time you mention Hugh Freeze. But what they don't mention is he lost to Vanderbilt twice. Dead. He lost to Memphis one of the years he beat Alabama. So he's, you know, he gets upset about as many times as he upsets somebody. So uh, I think Auburn is one that people are not looking uh, closely enough at. You know, Vanderbilt has so many seniors, and yet who are they trying out for their quarterback? It's a second-year sophomore in A.J. Swan. Um, you know, I – I do think that Vanderbilt could beat Missouri. That's Missouri's first road game, you know, away from Faroe. So I, I could see like the ingredients there to an upset. Although I, I think Missouri will beat them, but Vanderbilt has undone Missouri seasons before. I guess to to my additional point there, uh, you know, AJ Swan. Are you a believer in this kid, or do we just not have enough information for a guy who was a freshman last year? No, I like him. And uh, I had uh, a guy, I don't know if you follow his work, Chris Lee works for Vandy Sports. I think he does the best job of anybody covering Vanderbilt. And uh, I had him on my show about a year ago this time, and and he, he's been covering Vanderbilt 20-plus years. And he said, this guy's got more, the best arm talent I've seen since Jay Cutler. Yes. Now, he said, I don't think he's ready. He's going to make a ton of mistakes. And I don't think it really necessarily played out that way because his first start, was on the road, Northern Illinois, and most SEC fans probably roll their eyes at that, but Northern Illinois was the favorite to beat Vanderbilt. He threw for 255 yards, four touchdowns, zero interceptions, first career start as a true freshman. Very impressive. Now, the next couple, it was, uh, I may have the order mixed up, but it was Georgia, Alabama, and Ole Miss, who was undefeated at the time. So, I mean, it was just like the worst possible time to start a true freshman, and he didn't he obviously didn't play well, but I don't think he embarrassed himself either uh, before getting banged up. So, no, I'm a believer in him. And he's got some some weapons, I think, particularly at uh, receiver that most of the SEC is going to underrate. But uh, I like their trio of receivers there uh, at Nashville. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a competent Vanderbilt's about the worst thing you could ask for in the SEC East. So, selfishly, I hope that they... <laughs> Stay down for a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, let's talk about a team that is kind of falling from grace. Mike, I can't help but look at this Florida roster and think that it might be the worst in the SEC, especially with Graham Mertz, the the former blue chip quarterback who proved nothing at Wisconsin. I mean, 
What is going on with Florida? Are they truly that bad, or am I not seeing the right stuff here? Well, what I think is just hilarious, Nate, I, I don't know if you caught this, but uh, during the, the Florida spring game, you know how they interview the coaches. and I mean, what's the guy supposed to say? But he did say he's our number one target in the transfer portal when I know for a fact they went after about six other guys and, and they didn't get any of them, including several that are backups around the SEC that wouldn't leave their backup jobs become Florida starters. So I don't know what that says about the Gators, but uh, I know I think you're absolutely right. And what they were last year, they they were ground and pound. They had – now credit that staff. They Offensive line was kind of a train wreck under Dan Mullen, and it was probably the strongest part of that team last year. But four of those starters are off to the either the, the NFL or transferred out. So four or five new players on the offensive line. Uh, Graham Mertz, again, I, I have him rated as uh, – the 14th best quarterback out of 14 in the SEC. So I'm right there with you. Um, I think this is the worst skill talent I've ever seen. Uh, That receiver and tight end on a Florida roster. I I think Ricky Persall is a good player, but that's about it. And the hopes are are that the defense turns around. They just hired a guy, Austin Armstrong. I think he's like 28, 29 years old. Mm -hmm. And Nick Saban did hire him. We'll give him credit for that. But he hired him to be a linebackers coach. And that was with an open defensive coordinator spot available. So Nick Saban didn't think he was ready, but Billy Napier does. I trust Nick Saban over Billy Napier until further notice. So, again, that's not to say he'll be awful because they're apparently they're really excited about him. But if the defense is, is a train wreck and the offense is as bad as I think it will be, yeah, I mean, there is a real chance – that Florida's the worst team in the East. And maybe that's because of their schedule. I mean, they, they go to Utah, host Florida State, two top 15-ish type programs, and, and that's, of course, before they get to the SEC gauntlet. So, I don't know. And next year, Nate, I mean, I don't want to look too far ahead, but they faced 11 Power 5 teams, the Florida Gators do. So, it's not getting any better quickly. You know what? I mean – if they are as bad as you and I think they are, does does Billy get a third year? Like, is Florida patient enough to have him rebuild this thing? That's all he talks about is how tough this is. Do, does he get a third year or does he look somewhere else? I mean, everybody that I hear say for sure he's getting a third year, but that's what everybody says in the offseason, Nate. No. And as soon as you start losing games, that turns quickly. And, again, I, I, I'm not trying to mock Florida. I'm not trying to mock Vanderbilt, but that's a game you got to circle because they lost to Vanderbilt last year, because they host them. If he goes 0-2 against Vanderbilt, including the home loss, uh, I think you have to fire him immediately. I really do. Well, and, and that's with, right now they've got, I, th- I believe, the number three recruiting class in the country. They but do, yeah. I, I don't think that saves you if you're not winning football games. I really don't. Not at a place like Florida. Well, moving on to Kentucky, I mean, as long as – Stoops is there. I feel like they're going to have an awesome defense no matter what. It's always kind of a question of what the offense can do. And we have seen Liam Cohen before. He left after the 21 season, and now he's back. I guess my question for you, ignore the defense. I'm just going to assume it's fine. Did Liam Cohen succeed at Kentucky because of Wandale Robinson, or is he that good on his own, and Devin Leary is just going to be Kentucky's next NFL quarterback? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you're not the first person to, to kind of – suggest that but and I, I guess I never really considered it that way um, until this offseason when I've heard some of that narratives and, and Wondell Robinson was one hell of a player now obviously I believe he was like this, the first pick in the second round so top end NFL talent but if you're asking me would I rather have one top end guy or three really good receivers I'm going with three and I, I think that's what Kentucky's got right now and Dane Key Barry and Brown and um, uh, Travion Williams, I think is his name. And, yeah, I mean, I think you hit on the critical point there. Devin Leary, he's he's not going to look like Will Levis. He's a much smaller prospect, but I think he's an upgrade. And I've been saying that for a year and a half, that I thought Will Levis was criminally overrated. I never got that. I mean, he's he's a fine college player, but, I mean, this number one overall talk was just so – ridiculous and I I called that out and I think I was vindicated with that uh the the real problem with Kentucky is the offensive line 
And all of a sudden they went to, you know, that used to be the DNA of Kentucky was O-line U essentially. They went to this passing scheme and, and now they can't block anybody. And they couldn't run the ball either. So, uh, I mean, that is the the critical question with Kentucky. They, they've they added a couple transfers and they're bringing back four guys with starting experience. So you assume they'll turn that around just given the history, but it's not a given if they can solidify that offensive line. I, Kentucky, I have pegged as maybe the most improved team in the entire SEC this year. I'm I'm buying back in on Kentucky right now. Well, I think a, a team that a lot of people are kind of buying in on is South Carolina. And can, can you blame them? We saw them beat Tennessee. We saw them beat Clemson. There's There are these moments of clarity, like, oh, my God, this, this South Carolina team with Shane Beamer is going to be awesome. And then they turn around and lose to Missouri. And then they lose to Arkansas. And then they lose to Florida. Like, which team are they? Or are they just going to be this Jekyll and Hyde team that can beat big teams and lose to the mediocre stuff? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you say a lot of people are buying them. I'm selling them. I, I got to be honest with you. So, now, I, I like the future of it because I do believe in Shane Beamer because you're right. I mean, just I, the thing I like about Shane Beamer, you, you mentioned the Tennessee win, but they also had terrible streaks against Kentucky. They snapped that. Clemson, obviously, they snapped that. And A&M, which two years ago looked like an SEC team versus like an FCS team. It was that awful. Yet they, they turn that around in a year's time. That's a remarkable coaching job. So I like Shane Beamer. I like what they're doing on the recruiting trail. I think they have the best special teams maybe in the entire SEC. So there is stuff to like. But I'm just not a, I'm not buying in on Spencer Rattler because, you know, I'm not trying to be a hater, but when you – have started for three football seasons in college football, you kind of, we kind of know who you are. And yes, he had a great performance against Tennessee, uh, very good against Clemson, even though he threw a pick six, he threw another interception in the end zone. It was a ridiculous play. He should not have made it. And they still won that game. Uh, He just kind of is who he is. And maybe he can carry them to an upset or two here or there this fall season, but I ain't buying it because the position's, most people overlook this time of year, Nate. The offense and defensive line, they just lost their best uh, offensive lineman the left tackle, Nichols. He's likely out for the season. That was already a huge question mark. Uh, the defense, they lost their best defensive lineman to the NFL. They lost their second best defensive lineman to transfer. And they were one of the worst teams in the SEC stopping the run. So they're not strong in the line of scrimmage. And you just can't get away with that for too long in the SEC. So I think South Carolina, they're another one with a crazy schedule. I don't know why they schedule these North Carolina games and with the fact they have Clemson and an East schedule and A&M, which I think is poised for a bounce back. It's it, it's just, it'd be really, really difficult for me to see them winning another eight games like they did last year. I've, I've never been a, a believer in Spencer Rattler. I mean, 66% completion percentage, that's fine. But if you're getting sacked, you know, seven eight percent of the time you throw 12 interceptions on top of it like yes he can get you to the promised land he's also probably going to keep you out of it too I I just you know is there another quarterback on that roster that they can go to though or is this really just the only guy that they can really try out no not really I mean they got uh backup Luke Doty who he came in he's very athletic guy he his first I don't know I can't remember if it was a year or just a half it was just the spring, but they threw him out at receiver because they needed help there. Uh, to carry on Joyner, they've had for seemingly 20 years. They've, they've shifted him at running back. That's another thing I forgot to mention. They only have two scholarship running backs on the roster, Nate, and one of them is like a uh, Division two guy they just picked up at Newberry. I never even heard of Newberry. That's that's not to say he – I mean, Missouri fans know they just – they added the guy – where was he from? Trader, Truman, Truman State. Yeah, right. So I mean, you can make that jump, but it's difficult. And uh, the fact that you're having to move a quarterback to running back, I think that tells you something. Now they did sign a true freshman. I really like uh, his name's Sellers. He looked great in the spring game. But if you're asking a true freshman to come out here uh, with a raised expectations that South Carolina has, no, it, it's Spencer Rattler a bust for Carolina. Let's get to your favorite team. Let's talk about Tennessee a little bit. I I think a lot of people look down their nose at the 
you know, at the hypo higher when it happened because it like, oh, well, you know, he's a third, third choice and he's got just a cookie cutter offense and blah, blah, blah. Well, come to find out it's the second coming of the triple option and you can plug anybody in there and they're going to eliminate whatever athletic advantages. you have. So with hypo at the head with this offense, are we safe to assume that Tennessee is the real deal now? Like is two years enough or do we still need to see some proof of concept? Well, I think the the real way to answer that is, what do you mean when you say the real deal? I mean, are they annually going to be playoff contenders? Is is that what you're asking me? Challenge for the SEC, possibly get into the playoff every couple of years. That's yeah. you know Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia levels of consistency. Right. Uh, I would say not yet quite there, but I think they are approaching that, and a lot. Of that has to do with uh, the job they're doing in recruiting, and they are, it's no secret, they're one of the most heavily invested in NIL, which is perfectly legal now. We've had it before, and it was illegal. Uh, <laughs> just ask Jeremy Pruitt. But, uh, so, uh, hey, as long as it's legal, I think Tennessee is going to be leading the charge at that, and, and that, frankly, that's what you got to do, because they're doing it at Alabama, they're doing it at Georgia, they've been doing it for decades, and if you ain't doing it, then you're going to fall behind. So, I think that's big uh but of course josh heupel you mentioned it there i mean that's that's the most critical factor just his his offense his ability to coach up quarterbacks missouri fans know all about that basically everywhere he's been the last oh i don't know 10 years the the uh, the quarterbacks have just been outstanding and that does not mean i'm a big believer in joe milton i'm kind of middle of the road because he's same thing I said about Spencer Rattler. You you have to apply it to all these guys, and that, that counts Joe Milton. So I don't anticipate Joe Milton is going to be hit and hooker 2.0 because he's not. He's, he's a different player. I don't think he'll be as good. Uh, I, I do like what they got in the true freshman, Nico. I think he could be conceivably the next hit and hooker. Maybe not right away. Certainly not right away, but but down the line. I think uh, that's a big reason to, to have faith in Tennessee. but uh, And the defense. I mean, everybody looks at that South Carolina performance, and it was awful, admittedly. I mean, it cost them – it literally cost them a shot at the college football playoff. They they likely would have made it. And I think they would have gave them a hell of a lot better game in TCU. And I, I don't know if they could have beaten Ohio State, but I think yeah. – you know, they, I think they could have beaten Michigan, given that Michigan lost to TCU. So uh, – but we can sit here and, and what if all day long. But – the, the point I'm trying to make here, Nate, you cannot just say one game and the defense is awful because that's people who don't follow the game that closely. Defense won them the pit game. Defense won them the LSU game, which was maybe the most impressive win aside from Alabama on the schedule, uh, and the Clemson game at the end of the year, and the Kentucky game. I mean, they just destroyed Will Levis, and I, I thought, I didn't think he was a draftable prospect after that game. They made him look so bad, so... The defense has has stepped up at times, and I think they're more talented and they're deeper than they've ever been under Josh Heupel, which they don't need them to be Georgia's defense. They just need them yeah. to, to not be god-awful and let Spencer Rattler score 20 <laughs> touchdowns on them. Uh, and, and I think they're much closer to that this year. So, geez, I mean, man, you, get, you said you got the NIL, you got that on lockdown. You got the scheme that can beat any defense. You got that. You got a quarterback, at least an intriguing one, and then an all-world talent coming up behind him. You got a defense who can save you a couple games. Mike, if that's not up and coming, ready for the playoff, ready to challenge for the SEC, what more? How many more pieces do you need to be consistently good? Well, I, same thing. You know, I hate to keep repeating myself, but I, I I believe in these points so much. When you look at Georgia and Alabama, and I would possibly throw LSU as well into there. On the line of scrimmage, Tennessee just simply does not match up. Now, last year, the uh, particularly on the offensive line, well, the defensive line too. They were that, that's another thing people overlook with Tennessee. They were one of the best in the SEC stopping the run. That was paramount to their success. But they also had the number ten overall pick in right tackle uh, Darnell Wright, who just completely obliterated uh, Will Anderson in that Alabama game, and that was paramount to that win. So Tennessee is not at a position where they can lose a top 10 pick on the offensive line, Jerome Carvin at guard. He started like three or four years. Those were probably their two best offensive linemen. And I don't know that they have an all SEC caliber guy on that unit. So 
I think in the trenches, that could be an issue. And that was something that uh, year one under Josh Heupel, short yardage, third third down, they struggled with a little bit. And if they regress to that, you know, I, I'm not saying they're going to go seven and six again like they did first year, but uh, it, it's hard for me to see them competing for an SEC championship until that line of scrimmage gets a little bit better. Okay. Well, you talked about the Blue Bloods. Let's talk about Georgia. That's the SEC East favorite Blue Blood. Three national championships in a row. Do you see that happening? And if you don't, where do they trip up? Do they trip up in the SEC or do they had trip up in the playoff? Yeah. Or does the Athens Clark County police derail them? I mean, that's a legitimate question True. at this point in time, Nate. Yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, all jokes aside, I think they are the preseason number one, but they're not actually my pick to win the SEC. I like LSU. Uh, but that obviously would not come until the SEC championship, which we actually got last year, and, and Georgia dominated. But the, this is a new year. This is new rosters. And I'm a little concerned. I think you have to be, given all the distractions, the issues there. And it and that follows a lot of champions. It's that's This is what they say, Dave. It's much easier to, to reach the pinnacle than to stay there. And I think – Georgia and Kirby Smart are feeling that right now. And and one thing that I that people just for whatever reason they overlook in my mind, them having to go to the portal to add receivers. Now I love Dominic Lovett. Again, I hate I don't even know if we're allowed to say his name here. And, and Ra Ra Thomas from Mississippi State. Those were very good players for their teams. But it kind of reminds me of Alabama every year having to go to the portal to add a receiver or an offensive lineman, or a linebacker, or a corner. That's something that Georgia has stayed away from because they've been so great at recruiting and developing. And now we're starting to see Georgia having to reach into the portal. And I think as fans, we just sit here and say, oh, well, that's an upgrade. They're going to do great. But it doesn't work that way because not always. Because those, those players don't know what it takes to win a national championship. And there's maybe there's animosity in the locker room. Maybe there's not fitting into the culture, not fitting into the scheme. And I think that has held back Alabama the last couple of years. And I'm not saying that, you know, it'd be crazy to sit here and say, well, Georgia added two of the best receivers. That's going to hold them back. But I'm just sitting here. That to me says that they've not been recruiting and developing receivers that well. And where else are they kind of lacking? So I don't know. I, I think that is – that's a – not a huge red flag, but it's a it's a minor one in my mind because uh, uh, and let's just call it what it is. You know, when you're adding guys like that via the transfer portal, premier playmakers they're coming in because they got paid. So how invested are they in Georgia winning? I mean, they they may just you know this is their final year before going to the NFL. I I have to believe so. Combine all those factors, I'm slightly concerned that Georgia is not going to be nearly as good. And and again, I'm picking apart like these are like the only keys that I that I can weaknesses I can find in Georgia aside from new quarterback, new offensive coordinator and two new offensive tackles, but the tackles are five stars. The offensive coordinator's been in this league 20 years and led prolific offenses. So those are question marks, but they're not big question marks in my mind. Um we loved Dom Lovett, Lovett while he was here. Uh, I don't think anybody's rooting for him to succeed uh, at Georgia, and he gets to you know he gets to come back, uh, come back to Columbia. So we'll see. Uh, so let's talk about the best team in the SEC, at least in my mind. That would be Missouri. The um, first thing, obviously, we got to talk about quarterback. It's the most important part. And last year, Missouri was playing with a quarterback who did not have his entire shoulder intact. So when you look at his performance last year, it's easy to go well. He was a hell of a scrambler. He was a pretty inaccurate passer. How much does accuracy actually improve year to year? Not that much. It's easy to kind of file him away into that 11, 12, 13th ranked quarterback in the SEC. But in your mind, does a fully healthy, I have a shoulder now, Brady Cook, bring any kind of intrigue or potential upgrade from what, you, uh, from what you've seen previously? Well, certainly. And I, I think, I mean, this will necessarily answer your question but the fact that they have other options I think is also uh an added bonus clearly with with Garcia and Horn because if Cook can't get it done 
then, you know, last year, I guess, I'm assuming they just didn't feel comfortable with anybody uh, besides Brady Cook. So they kind of had to roll him out there. And, and yeah, I mean, that made a lot more sense once the season concluded and that was information was revealed. So it makes it so hard to evaluate Brady Cook. Uh, but he seemed to get better, in my mind, late in the season, particularly against Arkansas. I thought against Tennessee, he had some nice moments as well. I mean, they had tennis, I don't want to say on the ropes, but I think it was a I think it was a one-score game in the, yeah. in the second half there. So, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, he certainly had his moments, uh, but I love the fact that they brought in a, an offensive coordinator to r- run the offense because, I mean, I thought that's what we were getting with Drink. And it's seemingly every year, it's questions about the quarterback. It's, uh, you know, the offense not necessarily taking that next step. And I think a guy, you know, so many of these coaches, Nate, they're in the SEC. They're they're the best of the best. They they have essentially reached the pinnacle of college football, and they sit around and say, well, "Why in the hell would I change? I look where I I got here because of who because of what I know and, and the way I do it. And you just gave me X amount of million of dollars. I'm gonna I'm gonna go down doing what I do. But I think it's wise for these coaches, and, and it's not just Drake. We're seeing Jimbo. Of course, he may have a gun to his head while he's doing it. But other coaches bringing in an offensive mind. To, to, to take away from the head coach having to do both duties, I, I just think that's it's almost asking too much in the era of NIL and the transfer portal and recruiting and boosters and fundraising and on and on and on. Uh, it, it's just a lot to ask of a guy. And I like Kirby more, what I know of him. Obviously, his quarterback just got drafted by the New Orleans Saints. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think Brady Cook should be a lot better. And if he's not, I think on the bright side for Missouri fans, they have options, which they didn't have last year, and I think that could make all the difference in the world. So I said this when I was on your show you know, two or three months ago, whatever that was. I will say it again. When you and I talked in 2021, you asked if I was concerned about the quarterback position, and I told you no, because our co-SEC co-freshman of the year, Connor Bazelak, was going to be fine, and whoops, he wasn't. And then in 2022, we spoke, and you said, do you have any concerns about the offensive line? I said, no, they got plenty of options. We'll be fine. And oops, it was a problem last year. So again, SEC Mike, sir, you tell me what's wrong with my team. What are you concerned about heading into 2023? I think the biggest thing is running back. And, you know, uh, under Drake, first two years at Missouri, was it Beatty and Roundtree? I mean, they were outstanding. Um, and then at Appalachian, he had another guy. I think he's still in the NFL. So I'm wondering where that next guy is. And I, I don't know that we have him on the roster. I, I hear good things. I apologize. I, sh- I should have done my research. But uh, one of the freshmen I hear great things about. But it's easy to say that. I got to see it. You know, and, and I think that's what's been really been missing from this offense. Just just that. And maybe that's not fair because Beatty was awesome, and he's in the NFL for a reason. So, where where's that next, you know, three down running back that uh, Drake has had in the past, and and I think he really needs that for this offense to excel. And I just don't know if we got it right now. I mean, look, if your offensive scheme needs you to have an NFL talent to run it, maybe you should get a different scheme, and maybe that's why Kirby Moore came in. <laughs> <laughs> now you can you can grow you can develop an NFL talent and you know that was always my question like is his scheme making NFL guys or are NFL guys making his scheme look good and I think last year we figured out no he needs the talent as well as uh, the ability to draw it up so I am with you on running back Cody Schrader Nate Pete second year around you know maybe that helps Tavoris Jones got to sit on the sideline and watch last year he's a blue chip talent. Jamal Roberts is kind of a Swiss Army knife, do everything freshman coming in. I mean, do you really see running backs getting demonstrably better from year one to year two in the SEC? And if so, does that make you feel a little bit better, or does Mizzou really need someone new to step up? Yeah, I mean, well, I think it can. It certainly can. You get in there and you get a college weight room. I mean, I know that's cliche, it's coach speak type deal, but it's true. I mean, this is a this is a man's league, and it's it's just so difficult to come in here and and dominate right away. Even we have seen it at running back, but usually the guys that do that are high end five star talents and things of that nature. So 
I, I think it can, but it, it really is going to start up front with that offensive line and, and whether they can uh, get that push that uh, at times was lacking last year, to, to put it kindly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's all those combined. But, again, I don't know of anyone on that roster that, that has that talent, but that's the beauty of football, Nate. I mean, it, it plays out in the fall, and I'm – wrong about as often as I'm right so and that's the beauty of it I don't want to be right on everything if I was right on everything it wouldn't be fun you know what so let's let's talk about potential here Missouri unclear on who the quarterback is but they have lots of options uh tried to upgrade the offensive line might have an upgraded running back brought in a bunch of interesting wide receivers the almost the entire defense is coming back second most returning production in the country and they get to play eight, well, seven home games, a neutral site game, four road games. What is the ceiling in your mind of what Missouri can do this year? And what is the floor? I think the ceiling, I'm not going to go cr- quite as crazy as Cousin Shane. He's, he says 10, possibly 11 wins. I love Cousin Shane. <laughs> <We're sorry. laughs> and I mean, I, I don't mean to be cruel and laugh at that, but I, I don't know if we're talking that big of a jump. But I honestly think nine games is achievable and I mean heck you lose a lot of one score games last year if you can just flip those they may have won eight nine games last year and I like you said I mean there's a lot of reasons to think this is a better football team this year than they were last year the schedule sets up incredibly well right out the gate now having said all that I think there's massive pressure too and with specifically the Kansas State game, because they're coming to, to, to your place, and, you know, they kind of waxed you last year, but the, apparently that was the game where Brady Cook got hurt. So, I mean, we can sit here and make all kinds of excuses. But if you drop that football game, I think it's going to be deflating with uh, LSU coming to town in a couple of weeks. And, and we can't overlook Vanderbilt. That's why another reason I put that there. If you lose to Kansas State, maybe you're already looking ahead to LSU. I mean, I – we have kind of seen this playbook before with the former coach where he had an incredibly easy-looking schedule. They dropped the first one, and it was just a disaster from there on out. So I, it sets up well, but they got to take care of business. I think they could be 5-0. and Again, I've got LSU as the SEC champs. I'm picking them to win the national championship. So I think that game is, is more daunting than Missouri fans are, are giving it credit. But as they have mentioned to me about 50 times this offseason, LSU has never won in Kobo. So, hey, maybe that maybe that happens again. Maybe you get LSU napping. And, I mean, you want to talk being overlooked. I mean, LSU's probably going to overlook Missouri there too. So, yeah, I mean, with the defense, with everything they got coming back, potential upgrade at quarterback, whether that is Brady Cook just being better, being healthy, year two as a starting quarterback, uh, Luther Burden taking that next step. And, uh, you know, we got the thicker back for another year. Just got, you know, it's, it's so wild that he's he's about as uh, consistent on 50-plus yarders as he is, you know, under 20. We, if we can get that corrected, I mean, we may have the best kicker in the country too, which yeah. should not be overlooked either. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hope thicker gets back on his his high horse and kicks, <laughs> us, kicks us to victory on 20, 30, 40, and 50 yards. So nine wins, I could get on board with that. Maybe an upset or two gets us to 10. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be an interesting year. The, the, a lot of Missouri fans are talking ourselves into the potential for special. Uh, and it's, it's it's tough to tell in the offseason, but uh, I don't know. Then we also got to play your Tennessee Vols. I, uh, I don't know. I well, How do you feel about that game? I, I meant to mention this. I forgot. But, uh, you know, I think – Maybe this is overblown. I don't know, but um, remember last year Tennessee run up the score on them, and that game's going to be personal to drink. I, I really do think. And hey, Tennessee's dropped games that they shouldn't on the road before. Uh, I, I think that's one to circle there. Where I think uh, I think drink's going to be very, very, very invested in beating Tennessee this fall. You heard it here first, folks. He drink, which is going to be mad. He's going to want to be highball. I love it. Well, that is Mike Bratton. He is SEC Mike on Twitter. You can listen to that SEC podcast. Lots of great SEC news, football notes. This guy knows it all. He follows it all. Give him a listen. Give him a follow. Mike, thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it, man. 
Yeah, anytime. A good time. Uh, and like I said, truly a big fan of the show. So it's an honor to be here. I appreciate it. My thanks again to SEC Mike for joining us today. Always good to get his takes on the SEC. Uh, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, you can at least acknowledge that he is prepared. He does the research and can at least present an, a decent argument. Uh, so we will see how everything goes. And of course, you can follow him at SEC Mike on Twitter, that SEC podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Good show. You should listen. Definitely worth it. Uh, but that's going to be our show for today. And as always, we appreciate the downloads and the subscriptions. Leave a comment or rate us. We love all types of feedback from you all. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Nate G. Edwards. Uh, BK is at BK Sports Talk. Of course, you can follow the Rockin' Flagship at Rockin' Nation and our podcasting outlet at Rockin' Radio. We appreciate you tuning in this time. We'll try to do better next time. Until then, M-I-Z. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Rock M Radio, a proud partner of Fans First Sports Network. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to see more just like it beamed directly into your personal device, just click the subscribe button below. Beep. Uh, and you can find this podcast through the Apple Podcast app or for iPhone or the Google Podcast app for Android or whatever app you use to listen to your podcast. Uh, we are also available on Spotify. Just search for Rock M Radio. Uh, and if you like other sports, Fans First Sports Network uh, is a podcast network that has uh, coverage of all other teams, Major League Baseball, uh, MLS, uh, NFL, whatever you want uh, to listen and and read about it is a great great network full of really fantastic podcasts so look them up and subscribe uh to any and all of those podcasts uh rock m radio will be back with more episodes coming soon thanks